In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Wondering where you are right now. Are you still feeling Christmassy? Feeling New Yearish? Midwintery? Yulish? The reading from Luke's Gospel is unequivocally Christmassy. Shepherds, Mary, Joseph, baby Jesus, etc. The other from Isaiah, uh, not so much, not so Christmassy, unless, from the translation I was looking at, you, uh, you count the reference to the soil making the sprout come up. <laughs> you are just about still in Yule, which is the old Germanic midwinter festival that runs till tomorrow. Are you big on Hogmanay? That's today, or looking to dodge Scottish dancing and fireworks and trying to jump through straight to New Year tomorrow. Other people fear it. Heard a new word today, uh, neo-anophobia, fear of a new year. One thing at a time, I say, because uh, people have been wishing me Happy New Year for several days already, which I, I think is a touch previous. I'm still trying to stay merry, as in Merry Christmas, and you know, all, for all things in due course. I think Merry's easier. It's a transient thing, but it's a bit easier to stick with for a while than Happy, which is a big notion. Anyway, to the readings, one from Isaiah, one from Luke. Pretty words that decorate our thoughts once a year in a kind of familiar, tinselly way. Let's take Luke writing about the shepherds and Mary. Bethlehem. Stable of some sort, maybe a cave actually. Um, Mary and her newborn, the one exhausted after labour, the other wanting milk and sleeping. Enter the shepherds. How did you know we were here? says Mary. The shepherds look. Well, remember, these are real shepherds. They're not your children or grandchildren wearing tea towels on their heads. These are hard men accustomed to society's suspicion, if not downright disapproval. So these rough, fringe characters look in response to Mary's question as to how they knew to come, they look, well, sheepish. You tell her. No, you. No. Oh, well, fact is, some angels told us. There we were in the middle fields, and there's this light, and 
So he goes on, egged on by the others who are not prepared to tell the story themselves. He tells the story. For God's sake, don't tell anyone we told you. We'll be a laughing stock. And of course, Mary didn't tell anyone. Not then, anyway. Famously, Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. What are we meant to take from this story apart from being charmed by it? Consider how this story has come to us. It wasn't reported at the time. If it had been, King Herod's agents would have been onto it well before any magi turned up. So the shepherds kept it to themselves. Even though they went back to the fields rejoicing, they kept it close. Not the innkeeper, probably not Joseph, neither being rapporteurs in any gospel. It has to be Mary. Having pondered these things, 30 years later, she told someone about them, these strange signifying events. She told John or one of the other disciples, one of the other Marys perhaps. Whoever it was, the story entered the oral tradition and more decades later, got written down. And so we have it. It's Mary's quite quiet remembering and reflection that interests me. She too, like a prophet, was looking to the future. But she wasn't showily foretelling X event or Y, but thinking, I fancy, what's going on? Where is all this leading to? It must have been daunting. And she waited 30 years. Goodness knows what other clues to the future she would have had along the way. We really only know about the visit to Jerusalem when she and Joseph left the close to teenage Jesus behind. I'm sure she had other stories to tell, but most will have been lost along the way, not least because a woman's narrative would not have been, would not have counted for so very much. How did Mary hold herself together across those years? Her trust in God must have been considerable and her trust in and dedication to Jesus equally so. Now, Mary's revered as a top saint, if you like, but I don't think of her as the stained glass Mary, obedient and meek, knowing her place, blue frock, halo, hint of a smile. She was tough, mentally resilient, insightful, and able to take the long view. 
She's a model in that way, for any man or woman. Nowadays, she'd be out on the demo, or on the picket line with Jesus, or in many countries, outside the jail where he'd been banged up. Outside the jail where he was waiting for his execution, again. So Mary as a model. This is a silly aside, really. I don't think she'd be great on social media. Uh, remember, Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. So no instant judgment. No rash pronouncements. No selfies. Take Mary with you <clears throat> into the new year. <coughs> now, what about the Isaiah? Isaiah is prophecy. Exactly who was being prophetic, we're not sure. But the writings put together in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, date from uh, during and after the Babylonian exile. Now, to my mind, I think we accept too readily that such prophecy as we have heard is, was about Jesus, by being about a much desired Messiah. Well, it is and it isn't. Uh, because it's actually about Jerusalem, about the nation, and about where God will dwell. In the prophet's day, God needed a base, and he was no keener on Babylon than his people were, the prophet reckoned. The Messiah, then, is the means to bring about the desired re-establishment of Yahweh's Jerusalem home. The Messiah is an agent, not someone sought in his or her own right. It would never have been her, would it? It's not the Messiah who matters, but their enabling of the sought-for outcome. You can imagine then why so many priests and scholars were not just affronted, but totally flummoxed when Jesus told them that they had got the agenda wrong. And the particular bit of prophecy that we heard, righteousness and praise springing up before all nations and the vindication, the righteousness of, of Zion, meaning Jerusalem transcending its earthly status. Now, looking across hit at what has actually happened across history to righteousness and praise in all nations and to Jerusalem, we have to say that there is something dissonant between this prophecy and the events that have actually occurred, how things have panned out. The kindest thing you can say about the prophesied splendor as a prediction is that it is a work in progress. Why bother with Isaiah then? A poetic prophecy that seems a bit of a flop.
What are we meant to make of it beyond, again, being charmed by it? Well, try this. How about we don't judge prophecy by standards of punditry or something like weather forecasting? How about that we we allow that a prophet speaks a wider truth in the way that a poet might? We talk about the prophecies as being poetic, so let's, let's look at that. Weather forecasting. We look to a weather forecaster to help us choose whether to go to the shops before lunch or afterwards. We turn to poets to express the feeling of what it is to be in a rain shower or a storm at any time. In its time, that prophecy expressed a great surge of hope. But as a perennial call, as a perennial call for righteousness and salvation, it becomes a call to us or a call from us, not just something we view through a historic lens, not just the cry of a people two and a half thousand years ago. Similarly, if we don't take Zion as a specific location, <coughs> Temple Mount and all that, but as all the places where people dwell, then it behoves us to treat everywhere, Kiev, Moscow, Beijing, Khartoum, London, Timbuktu, Gaza, Bath, plus countryside and wilderness, any of those places as worthy for God to dwell in. It becomes a call to us and from us. So, we can coolly observe the prophet speaking to his people. There's us, there he is, there they are, poor them. Or we can take their words as our own call and aspiration. Each of us must choose. Amen.